Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 12. But for a bit of context, I will begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, God's word. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of the Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from of dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washing and the laying on the hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened who've tasted of the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they, if they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain is that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who drink, those who to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But it bears thorns and thistles. It is worthless and near to being cursed, and it is and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake, in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. As far as the reading of God's word, may bless it to us. Let's pray. So this morning, we come to a passage that has been a lightning rod for controversy and division. As early as the 200s AD, a teacher by the name of Novation used this text to insist that those who denied Jesus amid persecution were excluded from repentance and restoration to the church. They were lost for good. In the Middle Ages, scholars argued that one could not be rebaptized as these verses forbid a second baptism. During the Reformation, this passage was a test for the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, and so it became a dividing line between the Reformed and the Arminians. And even today, you've probably heard someone denounce the idea of once saved, always saved, by pointing to these verses. Yes, debate circles this passage like vultures around roadkill. And yet, where this dispute is important, as truth does matter, such quarreling can distract from the main burden of this text, which is to seal upon you the confident assurance of hope for your certain salvation. So as we wade into these prickly verses, it's good to remember that this passage is the second half to a larger paragraph, whose first half we covered last week. In fact, this whole unit is bracketed off by the mention of dullness. In 5.11, it was mentioned how the saints had become dull of hearing or lazy ears. 
So in 6.12, he tells them to stop being sluggish or dull. And as you'll recall, the author was warning his audience against going back to the synagogue by a covenantal contrast, the old versus the new. Moreover, he teased out this contrast by the motif of maturity or perfection versus immaturity. Their flirting with the old covenant is them reverting back to being babies, to choose a diet of the Old Testament types and shadows without Christ was for them to need a tutor, to be milk drinkers, infants, and incapable of the solid food of the word of righteousness. On the other hand, the realities of the new covenant obtained by the Melchizedek priesthood of Christ sat them at the adult table with discerning palates and solid food. Hence, he called for us to leave the elementary doctrines of the Messiah— those foggy Old Testament types without the light of the New Testament, and to be carried on to perfection or maturity in the New Covenant. And this was essential so that the foundation of the New Covenant didn't have to be laid again. Or, to be put put it another way, to go back to Judaism destroyed the foundation of life in the New Covenant united to Christ. And it's this very notion that the author now expands upon in verse 4. To rewind yourself spiritually back under the imperfection of the old covenant runs you headlong into an impossibility. If the foundation is destroyed, then it is impossible. The author lays before our path Something that's not possible. It's beyond the bounds, out of the question, unthinkable. Like a fish riding a bicycle, it cannot happen. Yet this impossibility only applies to a certain group. It doesn't limit everyone, but a distinct type of person. So who is this person pinned up against this wall that is impassable? Well, we are given quite the detailed description of this category of people. In fact, there are six features you have to match in order to qualify as part of this group. It is impossible for those who. And first up, they have once been enlightened. Now, in the third century, it was taught that this enlightenment referred to baptism, hence no second baptism. However, the evidence is firm that this enlightenment is not a baptismal reference. Instead, this light comes from the word of God to shine upon us the clarity of the gospel. Enlightenment happens when we make a profession of faith and become part of the church. Once enlightened means that the person is a member of the church and has testified to being converted. Second, those who are those in this group have tasted of the heavenly gift. Now, by tasted, Hebrews is merely continuing the metaphor of eating and taste buds from the end of chapter 5. So this is not pointing to the Lord's Supper. Rather, the author has used heavenly to describe the great gifts of the new covenant. Thus, we share in a heavenly calling, we seek a heavenly country, And in worship, we stand upon the heavenly Jerusalem. To taste of the heavenly is to have experienced 
the eternal gifts of the new covenant. Third, these folk have shared in the Holy Spirit. Now, this line makes our minds jump right to regeneration. Are these folk born again? Yet this is too narrow, for in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Spirit performs many duties, and not all of them are regenerative unto salvation. Thus, we read a very similar line to this back in chapter 3. There it said, you are sharers in Christ if you hold fast in faith. Sharing in Christ depended upon faith. Now, as members of the church, they had the status of being sharers in Christ, but this was only true and real if accompanied by faith. Likewise here, to share in the Spirit includes the real benefits of being part of the visible church, but these are only actualized fully by faith. And note that no mention of faith has yet surfaced in this description. Fourth, the people in this group have tasted the good word of God. And this good word is an Old Testament idiom referring to God's promises and his mercifully kind words. To taste of the good word means you've heard and enjoyed the comfort of God's promises. The sweet mercy of the Lord's words have delighted the ear and calmed the heart. Fifth, these people have experienced the powers of the age to come. Now, powers here could include apostolic miracles and signs, so the saints may have witnessed or possibly even were recipients of a miracle. Yet powers here is not limited to such apostolic wonders. They also include divine help that strengthens one to resist temptation and evils and to perform good deeds. More significantly, though, these powers hail from the coming age. They are heavenly aids and encouragements poured into our present lives. Therefore, these five attributes of this group are clear references to being a member of the new covenant. Gospel-enlightened, heavenly worship, benefits from the Spirit, kind promises, and heavenly help. These describe the superior covenant administration inaugurated in and by Christ Jesus. And such a new covenant, new covenant blessings are meant to be both external and internal. That is, they profit us externally with a host of positive influences. But their true target is the internal. These heavenly powers aim at the heart and it being permanent. But the only way they penetrate the heart is by faith. Faith is the alone instrument that brings them from outside to inside of us. Though, as we've said, faith has not yet made an appearance in this list. Thus, simply put, these five attributes portray a member of the visible church, the new covenant community. Nothing here cements them as being elect or being regenerated. And now comes the sixth and final description of this group of folks. They have fallen away. They fall short, wander away, forsake the narrow path, give up on the heavenly, 
and reject God's good word. Yet this word for fall away is much more specific and serious. For the author pulls this word from Ezekiel, where it shows up a handful of times from the most grievous sin of the Old Testament. This sin is that of a sacrilege that shatters the covenant. And a sacrilege is where one defiles the most holy name of the Lord, which profanes the covenant relationship at its most basic level. This is no average or ordinary sin. This is not a sin that you can accidentally step upon or inadvertently commit in a moment of uncontrolled emotion. No, this faithless sacrilege slanders the holy name of Yahweh and willfully repudiates him as Lord and Savior with full and arrogant awareness. Hence, note the effect of such a heinous sacrilege. They crucify the Son of God. They expose Jesus to public shame. To crucify and impale naked the Son of God all over again, is for the person to reject the death of Christ as saving and then to label it as disgraceful and worthless. It is a high-handed sin to blaspheme Jesus, who was just a worthless sinner who got what he deserved. This rejects the holy name of Christ and his sacred word of work upon the cross for our eternal salvation and then spits on it as a gross evil. It willfully slanders the gospel as bad news. With clear knowledge, this sacrilege profanes our Savior and his work upon the cross. And this is the true nature of the sin in going back to Judaism, to return to the Old Testament now that Christ has come. And it is because... And it is because of the nature of the sacrilege that it's impossible to restore such an apostate back to repentance. For one, it's clear that such a person never had true faith. Ezekiel brings this out as he condemns Israel for the same type of sacrilege. Those rebellious Israelites never knew God. They never trusted him. Sure, they enjoyed the external benefits of the covenant, as here, but their hearts had always been hardened in idolatry. Secondly, the nature of this sin excludes repentance, both by its knowledgeable willfulness and by profaning the very ground of repentance. Such a sacrilege hails from a place of unchangeable depravity. People who do this do not change. More so, though, correct repentance prostrates you upon the sweet mercy of Jesus and his shed blood. But if you profane and slander the work of Christ, then nothing remains for one to repent upon. Sacrilege blows up the life raft and then complains that there's nothing to save them from drowning. Finally, renewal is impossible Uh, for sacrilege due to God's judgment. In his justice and out of zeal for his holy name, particularly his holy son, the Lord published and ordained 
that only judgment remains for those who plunge themselves into sacrilege after tasting the heavenly graces of the new covenant. And this reason of judge and this reason of judgment, the author now accents in the next two verses with an analogy. He says, there is a land that's been frequently rained upon. This is the ideal state for a piece of farmland. Regular rains are the generosity and abundance of heaven. But there's two outcomes for this fine pasture. One, the pasture can yield a superb crop for the cultivator. The land grows tall and green and it blossoms a bumper harvest to fill the barn of the farmer. And this fruitful field receives the stamp of God's blessing. Blessed is the lush land. There is, though, a second result. At times, this same well-watered farm grows only thorns and thistles. Instead of lovely fruit, nasty weeds conquer every last square inch of the field. Such useless, such a useless harvest of pricklies wins then the land, the grade of curse. And a curse field is consigned for the burning. So also the judgment of God upon the sacrilegious apostate is ratified as proper. The two lands enjoyed the same heavenly blessing. They both drank deeply of the rain of the new covenant. But where the one fittingly turned God's kindness into fruitfulness, the other profaned the rain to grow thorns, the anti-fruit. The Lord then has proved right to judge the ungrateful and wicked land that perverted God's lavish gifts for an evil end. And this warning not to fall away is real. It is somber and sober meant for us to take it to heart. For there are some who enjoy the blessings of the new covenant. They have been influenced by the Spirit and been graced by the kind promises of the Father. Yet these external blessings are not combined with faith. And so they do not honestly penetrate the heart. And then from a place of unbelief, these people speed towards a sacrilege by rejecting and profaning the foundation of our salvation, Jesus Christ, his person and his work. They repudiate the glorious and gracious gospel of the Son of God, and they exchange it for animal sacrifice and the deeds of the law. After tasting of the heavenly gift, they become like the priests who stood around the cross of Christ and cheered for the cursing of Jesus in order to preserve their religion as Christless. And this is the reality for those who profane Christ to return to the synagogue. And it is a warning for us to heed. If you are tempted to go back to Judaism, if you are pulled back to the Old Testament without Christ, these are steps toward this sacrilege. If someone boldly profanes the Holy Son, then the door of repentance is shut. It cannot be reopened as they blaspheme Jesus himself, the very ground of our repentance. And yet, as heavy as this warning is, 
the author is confident of better things. We are cautioned against this sacrilege against Christ, but then we are encouraged with a positive outcome. Hebrews is persuaded that the saints will not fall back into this profanation of Christ, but they will remain within his salvation. Indeed, he even addresses us as beloved. He looks upon us with the very affection of God. Thus, the author switches from acidic warnings to sugary encouragements. And why is he sure of better things of salvation for the saints? Well, not, well, because God is not unjust to forget. The Lord will not dismiss their labors of love done in his name. That is, these saints facing such a dire temptation have previously exhibited good deeds and love performed in God's holy name. Empowered by the name of Christ, they have yielded the harvest of fine labors and sweet love. And the Lord will not just forget these pleasant fruits. He will not toss in the trash their lovely deeds to the saints. But why put it this way? Well, it fits the imagery of a well-watered field. That is, obedient deeds of love are the fruits of faith. They are evidences of a true and lively faith dwelling in our heart. This means that the saints do have faith, unlike those who fall into sacrilege, and their love is proof of their faith. And our gracious God does not forget faith. Our faith may be weak. It may enjoy seasons of confidence and experience storms of doubt. At times, our faith can stumble in the mud, wander from the narrow way, and ponder evil. But once faith is sown in the heart truly by the Spirit, the Lord forgets it not. He will not spurn the root of faith. Note also the concrete expression of their loving good deeds. They serve the saints and are still serving. Those tempted by Judaism ministered to their fellow saints with devotion and affection. And this saintly service they performed in the past and are yet doing it in the present. There are many good deeds that we can do. We are called to obedience in all areas of life, but there's a priority towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. Just as loving your family takes priority over loving your neighbor, so devoted service to the household of God is one of the chief fruits of faith. A faith in Christ that does not love the saints is one that is lacking in evidence that their faith is true. Yet in the face of their present temptations, their good love has waned some. The warmth of their affection has cooled a bit. And so the author encourages them back to this same zeal. He says, you have loved well in the past. You're struggling in the present. So return to the zeal you once showed. Hebrews sets forth loving zeal as medicine for weak faith. How does faith, sick with doubt, return to full health. 
Well, there are many ways, but one is by continuing in serving the saints. Yes, deeds of love help our faith. Indeed, he states clearly that the goal of this renewed earnestness in serving is so that they may have full assurance of hope until the end. He wants them to possess a hope fully assured. And what is assured hope? It's for you to know with confidence that you're saved and you're always saved. Assurance of hope is believing in and being confident that the Lord preserves all who belong to him. In the debates that dance upon this passage, it's often assumed that the stern warning excludes the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. If If someone can fall away, then there is no assurance of salvation. But the author of Hebrews operates in the opposite direction. He issues the warning in order to secure the saints to grow in assurance. He wants them to hold more firmly to God who preserves his his beloved children. Thus he tells them not to be lazy. The the spiritually sluggish hearing that pulls back towards a Christless Old Testament, we should have nothing to do with this. To take seriously the temptation to go back to the synagogue is to have lazy ears. Instead, we should banish such lazy listening and become imitators of those who inherit promises. Modeling those who commit sacrilege to fall away This we should avoid. Rather, we should follow the example of those who've received the promises of God and then inherited them. Those who apostatize hear the good works of God, good words of the Father's promise, but then they scorn them by crucifying Christ all over again. This is the negative we must not model. Instead, we are called to imitate the inheritors of the promise, who did so by faith and by patience. Through an enduring faith, the Lord brings us into his everlasting inheritance. So then, what is our shield and our defense against this unbelieving sin of sacrilege? It's to believe harder in Christ. It is to endure in the face with patience and endurance. We are called to faith in Christ as the uh, uh, calming balm against the temptation to return to a Christless religion. And why? Because it's through faith that all these benefits of the new covenant penetrate deep into our hearts. By faith, the Spirit brings Christ near to us, even inside of us, and unites us to him. By faith, you are made everlasting sharers in the Spirit. By trust in Christ, the good promises of God's kindness embrace your soul with imperishable comforts. The powers of the age to come work effectively and perfectly in you by faith. Through faith in Christ, as the Son of God who died for us, Jesus and all his benefits are made yours, and forever so. 
as our faith ever holds on to Jesus, then we become fully assured in hope that God's salvation of us is certain. Yes, by means of faith, Jesus comforts your hearts so that without a shadow of doubt, you may know that he holds you in his hand and he will never let you go. The Spirit brings us into this forever love of of God in Christ by faith so that you can be assured that his love never fails nor forsakes you. So then let us flee any and all temptations to profane the name and the work of Jesus. May we instead embrace Christ with patient faith. And may our faith press on to yield the good fruits of loving service to the saints. For as we walk in the love of Christ, the Spirit strengthens our faith in Jesus so that we are more assured that God's salvation is firm and certain to his eternal praise. Praise our Lord. Amen. Let's pray.